Naval College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Monday afternoon, November 29, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, taking up chapter 6 in Blakelock's book, Archaeology and the Resurrection of Christ. In uh, chapter 5 of Blakelock's book, questions 66, 67, 68. Is that right? I went over them in my office after I got back from here and <laughs> recorded them on the tape. All right, we, we'll go right now. <laughs> what water supply did the Romans provide for Caesarea? Anybody want to answer that? Oh, I only say I hope the water tasted better than what we drink here. Um, Youngstown pours their industrial waste, et cetera, et cetera, into the Mahoney River. It becomes the Beaver River at Newcastle, and at Beaver Falls we drink it. And then, well, that's that. The, uh, anybody want to answer that one about the water supply for Caesarea? Well, the uh, ruins of a large aqueduct were found. So evidently the Romans, who were always aqueduct builders and engineers, had provided a presumably plentiful water supply for this city, which was their capital in Palestine. <coughs> and uh, the source of this has not been discovered. And Blakelock says, must be somewhere in the mountains, the, perhaps uh, covered with earth or rubble, the uh, ruins of the large reservoirs must be still waiting to be found. These haven't been found. Somebody will find these yet. The public of Israel is pretty active at uh, investigating things, and uh, they may discover these. But to the provision of a water supply bringing uh, water from a distance is proved by the ruins of the aqueduct that were found there. And in um, 67, the pavement, quote-unquote, mentioned in John 19.13. This is where Pilate went out to pronounce judgment on Jesus. The pavement. This was evidently a name of a part of the city there, or part of the Roman headquarters. And this was underneath for a part of the uh, Tower of Antonia, which was north of the temple area, and the ruins of it today north of the... Uh, what would be the temple area, the Mosque of Omar, some of the rocks. And there, uh, many feet under the present-day ground surface, Blakelock says, I believe, about 20 feet, they found this place where Pilate's judgment seat was, or at least where he came out. You see, it was the preparation of the Passover, and the Jews wouldn't go into his office on that day. They could have an innocent man crucified, but... They wouldn't defile themselves going into a Gentile wall. And um, so he came out to this place, the pavement. And uh, this was found and um, uh, that many feet underground. And then further back underneath the ruins of the castle of Antonia, question 68, the, uh, a pavement, a paved area marked off for some kind of game, evidently played by the Roman soldiers when they were off duty. And the Blakelock says this calls to, to mind a uh, absolutely startling and terrific contrast. The Roman soldiers in there are playing their games, and uh, Jesus uh, right near there being uh, sentenced to be crucified, although Pilate had three times pronounced him not guilty. Uh, the uh, 
this is also very likely the place where the soldiers mocked Jesus after he had been sentenced to be crucified and had been scourged. You recall they mocked him with the purple robe which they put on him and the crown of thorns and uh, asked him um, silly questions like prophesying what to do with it, the and things like this. And this was probably at this place which has now been discovered underneath the foundations of the old castle of Antonia. Now the Roman capital of Palestine was not at Jerusalem, it was at Caesarea. But uh, of course Jerusalem was an important city, except for Caesarea it was the most important and this was, the Romans always had a, a large garrison of troops there, which was considered a potential troublemaker, Jerusalem was, and they had always had a, a garrison there. And the castle of Antonia was the Roman headquarters in Jerusalem, as the city of Caesarea was in Palestine. All right, any further questions on 66, 67, and 68 before we go on? Okay, now there was a remarkable discovery made, and that is commonly called the Nazareth Inscription or the Nazareth Decree. If you look in your books on page 77, you will see a picture of this, and above it, the Emperor Claudius. It's taken, of course, from a statue of him that had been found. The so-called Nazareth Decree or Nazareth inscription. Now this was um, brought to Paris, and what was the date that this affair reached the um, city of Paris in France? Right, eighteen seventy-eight. That's almost a hundred years ago, isn't it? This is seventy-one. That's uh, ninety, uh, ninety-one years ago or so, and. Um, came into the private collection of a French antiquarian or archaeologist with a German sounding name, Kroner, although he was a Frenchman. And uh, question 69, what were the eccentricities of this man? He was a queer sort of a fellow. What, does, uh, what do we know about him? Well, Mr. Beatty, what about Kroner? Well, whatever he was... Uh would you think this man was a crackpot? Well, uh, evidently he had his peculiarities. He thought it was published in a book or magazine or a journal like that sort of stole it from him. And so he wanted to keep his private collection in private and for himself. And this is why it was many, many years before um, anybody outside of himself got any uh, real look at this. He listed this with this little simple tag on it, slab of marble sent from Nazareth in 1878. Now, Bronner, in spite of his um, peculiarities and eccentricities, what does Blakelock think of him as a scholar? Well, does he think he was a nut of the scholar too? How about that, Mr. He thinks this man was topped as an archaeologist. And if this, he says, if Rohner put a tag on it, said, uh, sent from Nazareth 1878, all right, it was sent from Nazareth 1878. He said, this can be accepted without question. 
on this man's Plato, his reputation as a wearer of evidence and sifter of claims and a scholar of uh, discoveries and facts is so great that if he uh, labeled it this way, why, uh, this can be taken without further question or dispute. And so um, it was hid away in his private collection until his death. Now, what happened to this man's uh, collection of antiques and so forth when he died? He didn't take it with him, that's for sure. <coughs> what happened to it? Well, uh, what do you do? You live around here and have something like this, and you're going to pass away from this world, you, you give it to Geneva College. Uh, what do you do if you live in Paris? What's the museum in Paris, Mr. Mary? Louvre. L-O-U-V-R-E. Louvre. Louvre. How do you pronounce Not that R. Who's the student of French? No. No, no. All right. Louvre. Uh, as far as I'm concerned. The great National Museum of France acquired this and everything else in this man's collection. Uh, and uh, there they were, they were put around in a... Um, a large um, display place, cabinets of metals, and it wasn't until 1930, that is uh, almost 50 years later, more than 50 years later, that a real scholar noticed this thing and paid any attention to it. And this man is uh, Michel Rostovsky. Now, uh, he was, uh, you think he was straight from Moscow with that name, but um, he was professor of history at Harvard University, and um, I'm sure it's not a native-born American. I think maybe he wasn't, but a naturalized American, and uh, no comment. Rostov is a historian of great fame and, and note, and he was uh, giving me the, the uh, treasures in this room in the Louvre the once over when he happened to notice this thing that nobody had paid any attention to before. And this is then what he read. And he said he stared in astonishment. Here was an inscription of unique importance unknown to the world of scholars. It seldom happens. Usually the scholars know about it first. And here you see, on account of the peculiar character traits of Monsieur Froner, this uh, had not been publicized, and the scholarly world had not had any information of it. Now, this is the translation of this. Ordinance of Caesar, question 70. It is my pleasure that graves and tombs remain undisturbed in perpetuity for those who have made them for the cult of their ancestors or children or members of their house. If, however, any man lay information that another has either demolished them or has in any way extracted the buried, or has maliciously transferred them to other places in order to wrong them, or has displaced the stealing of other stones, against such a one I order that a trial be instituted as in respect of the gods, so in regard to the cult of mortals. For it shall be much more obligatory to honor the buried, that it be absolutely forbidden for anyone to disturb them. In the case of contravention, I desire the offender be sentenced to capital punishment on charge of violation of sepulture. Now, uh, that's a remarkable document, and we'll see more about it in a little bit. Uh, Rostock said that called this to the attention of a French um, Catholic 
scholar who was interested in ancient studies, the Abbe Kumar. And he wrote about it in uh, 1932 in uh, a journal, Journal of Greek Studies. And this has been greatly discussed since then, but this began in 1932. And you see it was 1930 that Rostov discovered this in the French National Museum or the Louvre. And uh, uh, Blakelock says, every Roman emperor from Augustus to Hadrian, except Caligula, has been nominated as the author of this Nazareth decree. Now, Caligula was um, correctly called Germanicus. He was uh, batty in the head. Caligula is the one who sent his legions to the English Channel to collect seashells for his collection along the shore of Normandy. This is Caligula. He was clear dead. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Dad. Well, uh, he says uh, from Augustus to Hadrian. Augustus was um, first. He was living at the time of the birth of Jesus, and uh, Hadrian was in the middle, the later part of the 100. And uh, Claudius would be in the middle. There. Caligula is left out because he was considered incapable of writing a thing like this. <laughs> so they left him out. Did any of you see the movie of, I think it was The Rose? It had this emperor featured. And he uh, was a, a man he intended to have put to death, uh, assassinated, but this guy beat him to it by committing suicide. Set in the robe. And the emperor says, Dead by his own hand, and he picks out a little bottle and holds it under his eye and leaks one tear into it. Remember that? Saying that? That's Caligula, or Germanicus. And uh, he is not counted here among these. Now, uh, an Italian historian, Arnaldo Montigliano, whom Blakelock calls brilliant, held that this was the work of the Emperor Claudius. And the rest of the um, Blakelock's discussion of this is uh, backing this up and uh, claiming that this is correct, that Claudius was the author of this. And uh, first he looked at two or three other things about this. In the first place, um, was this, this is in Greek, this inscription, as you can see by looking at the tablet. You stood in the Greek, Mr. Dennis? Uh, could you read it just by looking at it there on page 70, 77? Nice big capital letters. They ought to be easy to read. Or do you pass? <laughs> all right. Uh, it's Greek, all right. Now, uh, on what ground does Blakelock say this was a translation and was not originally written in Greek? Mr. Harris? says there, middle page 78, the Latin idiom peeps a little clumsily through the Greek translation. In other words, this is not a, an expert translation done by a, a real Greek. And therefore, presumably, this came from Rome to Palestine in Latin. But who speaks Latin in Palestine, at least in those days, nobody but Roman officials. But Greeks, all educated people knew, as well as, of course, Aramaic or Hebrew. 
And so this was translated into Greek so that the people it was meant for could read it and see it. But clumsily done by somebody who was presumably not himself a Greek, or to whom Greek was a learned or second language. And it was put into Greek for the bilingual inhabitants that Aramaic and Greek of Palestine or Nazareth and done by some secretary of the Roman government. Now, um, that's in the first place. This bears the marks of being a translation and not an original. Next, we have the question raised, why can this not be properly called a decree? Now, what Roman emperors put out is called decrees, usually. If they want somebody to do something, they sure get done it's a decree. It starts out saying ordinance of Caesar. But what is the difference between a decree and a rescript? Or are they two names for the same thing? put out in legal, technical, formal language, and this isn't. This is quite colloquial in its language. And it does not have the formality and uh, elegant language that you would have in a decree. Now, uh, where the thing started with the Roman emperor, like a law, see? When uh, we got a law passed in Congress, the committee passed these over, and then when they finally decide the different points, for instance, uh, how much... Uh, the exemption or so forth on income tax is going to be. Then this is turned over to the clerks who are expert in writing these things up in the proper form, and they put it in its final form before it's finally enacted by Congress. But the congressmen that meet in committees and hash these over, they don't write the law in its final form. This has to be done by somebody that knows exactly how you say these things and to avoid the, the trouble that might come from some loophole or something. All right? I think this is true. And um, a, a decree would be something that started with the emperor, like a law. And what is a rescript then? Well, um, he brings it out here. A rescript is the reply to questions asked. Somebody sends the emperor questions. Such and such happened. Now, what are we to do about this? And the emperor sends back a statement in reply. And this is... Uh, Apparently, according to Blakelock at least, a rescript and a, a reply to questions addressed to the local governor in the northern Palestine or in Judea, uh, whose chief was in Syria and his chief above him in Rome, who had presumably sent a question to Rome about what to do about the question of people molesting or robbing tombs. Now, uh, there's a parallel to this. And, uh, well, wait a minute, uh, question 74, what two kinds of evidence does Blakelock, um, on, on what kind, two kinds of evidence does Blakelock base his conclusion the Nazareth inscription is to be dated 40 to 50? That's 74, we'll come back here in a minute. 74, converging lines of evidence suggest that this falls within the decade that closed AD 50. That would be AD 40 to 50. Now, on what ground? Or does he just believe this? It's an article of faith. Mr. Gray? Uh, 
right. The style of the Greek writing, this is the key to the date and can be determined within a few years by the style of the writing. And then um, uh, the, the style of the writing shows it belongs to the first half of the first century. This then rules out three emperors, Augustus, Tiberius, and Caligula, uh, because the central Roman government did not take over the administration of Galilee until A.D. 44. It was under a puppet king, Agrippa, and the Romans only held the faraway overlordship of it, but it was not administered by them until the year 44. So there could have been no uh, governor of Syria or Judea put up an inscription of this kind before the year 44. The Romans were not running the place. He says the autonomy of the area may have been a legal fiction, but the Romans of all imperialists knew the value of legal fiction. This explains why they said to Pilate, we do not have authority to execute a death sentence. Now, um, Beckwith goes on here, he says, um, no Roman authority, middle of page 80, would presume to set up inscribed laws at Nazareth before A.D. 44. And the style of writing shows that it was from the first half of the century, therefore before A.D. 50. So this gives you a, a date from A.D. 44 to about A.D. 50. And he concludes from this, perhaps A.D. 50, the middle of the first century, is as close as we can hazard an opinion as to the date of this inscription here. Now, um, the question in question 73, let's see, I want to, I seem to have my question somewhat out of order here. Let's see, just a minute. There's a parallel here about the Pliny, partial parallel. Yeah, 72. The Emperor Trajan wrote to Pliny, governor of Bithynia. Now, where is Bithynia? Well, is that in California? Asian Minor. Asian Minor, along shores of the Black Sea. Paul was going to go there, and the Holy Spirit directed him to go the other way. Bithynia. And Pliny, governor of Bithynia, this is a man that had the correspondence with the emperor about what do you do about these Christians. And the emperor said, give them a chance to claim they aren't Christians, and if they won't take that, let's put them to death. Uh, this is Pliny. He was a profuse and persistent letter writer. He must have bothered the emperor quite a bit. He was forever the big book of the questions that um, Pliny sent to the emperor Trajan, and Trajan's reply. And here and there, Trajan indicates he was a little bit irritated at getting so many, sometimes rather stupid questions from this man Pliny out there and suggests that he decide something himself without referring everything to Rome that way. And um, so Pliny had evidently sent the emperor a, um, a question. This is given on the top of page 79. This is Pliny's question. And then Trajan's reply is a rescript. Having been petitioned by some persons to grant them the liberty of removing relics of their deceased relations on the ground that their tombs were destroyed by age or broken down by invasion of floodwaters, I thought proper, sir, knowing it is usual at Rome to consult the College of Pontus on such matters, 
to ask you, as head of that sacred order, what course you would have me follow. In other words, somebody wants to move a grave from the cemetery to some other place. Do I let him do it or not? And he writes to the emperor to ask what answer to give people like that. And Pliny writes back, says, one imagines a little testily, for Pliny was the most assiduous correspondent. He writes, the obligation to petition the pontifical college is a hardship for the provincials. In other words, you're too far away. This is too, too difficult to expect you to carry out that protocol. When they have just reasons for removing the ashes of their ancestors, it will be better, therefore, for you to follow the example of your predecessors and grant or deny this liberty as you see reasonable. Now, that's um, what he wrote to Pliny, showing that there were questions about this kind of thing. This um, would be a query sent to an emperor and a rescript sent in reply. Now then, if the Nazareth inscription is a rescript or an answer to questions, this raises a further question for us. How does it come to be found in Nazareth of all places? This was not where Jesus was buried, and Nazareth was a very um, unimportant sort of a town. It never has been very important, except for the fact that Jesus grew up there. Otherwise, a rather insignificant place on the hillside. And why would it be that this thing was found at Nazareth, and only at Nazareth, the town from which Christ came? And um, this... Uh, this involves questions that maybe we can't fully answer. It says that Christ's empty tomb had given the Christian church its gospel. And why was the emperor stirred to such drastic threatening? Capital punishment at Rome in the first century was not common at all. And it was not used for anything but the worst crimes, like murder or high treason. And something like uh, violating a cemetery, this would hardly be uh, occasion for a death penalty. Somebody would more likely be fined a certain amount of money or something like that for this. And uh, so what kind of question would have moved a Roman ruler to um, lay down a penalty like this and have the inscription put up in an obscure town in Palestine and only there? Now, uh, we looked at the evidence for the date. Now the evidence that it may have been or probably was the Emperor Claudius. This is question 75 now. What peculiarities of the Emperor Claudius make it credible that the Nazareth inscription was issued by him? Now I said Caligula was clear back. But how about Claudius? You wouldn't call him psychotic, would you? Um... What kind of a person was he, according to the book? Well, I don't want to put you on the spot, especially in case there might be some of you haven't read. Mr. Harris? It says that he was uh, possible that he was fasting. Yeah. Everybody, for a long time, everybody was mad. Yeah. Well, coming out that he was a real person. Was a person. Would this do something to your personality? Yeah, well, you grow up with a feeling that uh, everybody thinks you're no good, something like this. And this could make a person withdraw from contact, sort of into his inner life. And uh, this is what Claudius did. 
that he would much rather have been a scholar just occupied with books and obeyed the emperor of the Roman Empire, but he was the emperor. Ancient historians persisted in calling him mad. That's crazy. But the more his actual achievements are studied, the clearer it becomes he was a man of learning and of no mean ability. A victim of some cerebral disturbance, his faulty coordination conveyed an unjust impression of abnormality and resulted in his later years in ridicule and misunderstanding which damaged his personality. We had a student here, he graduated with a spastic. Let me tell you, there was nothing wrong with his mind. He was as sharp as a member of this. What was his name? Alan, uh, yeah. His, he was as sharp as a new penny. He, had one of, he was in the top of every class he was in. And on faculty, student committees, and what he had to say was always uh, very relevant and, and uh, informed. So uh, mind and your body are two different things. Anyhow, this is Claudius here, and um, he was also a student of and a sort of a hobbyist in the affairs of the Eastern Mediterranean and especially its religions. And we have a letter from um, Claudius in which he tries to straighten out a Jewish problem in Alexandria, Egypt, page 81 here. And uh, this is a papyrus letter, and it seems to contain the first secular reference known to Christians, AD 41. About that forbids the Alexandrian Jews to bring or invite other Jews to come by sea from Syria. If they do not abstain from this conduct, I shall proceed against them for fomenting a malady common to the world. Notice the language, the rather downright style of the Nazareth inscription, the language of a man who has studied the Jewish religious problem and found it irritating. This man considers the Jews not a minority who have their rights protected, but a minority that are a nuisance. Always uh, some trouble going on where the Jews are, and there's always, uh, I'm not saying that myself, that's what Claudius said, and uh, always wanting preferential treatment or exceptions to laws and so forth. They wangled exceptions. They didn't have to serve any work in the Roman army on the, they were exempt from military service, and they could not be required to violate their Sabbath. They had a whole series of preferential exceptions made for them. And uh, so uh, Claudius evidently considered the Jews a bother and an issue. Now this is mentioned in the book of Acts and two Roman historians confirm it. So there's no question about it. A.D. 49, he expelled all Jews from Rome. This was when um, Priscilla and Aquila left Rome to go to Corinth because they were Jewish and uh, had to, Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome. They all had to leave. And uh, the Roman historian Suetonius adds, Claudius acted thus because of rioting in the ghetto at the instigation of one Crestus. Now who is Crestus? That's what Suetonius, this Roman Latin historian says, C-H-R-E-S-T-O-S. Uh, how are you gonna, what are you going to make of that? Well, um, according to Blakelock, what do we make of that? Uh, is this to be an incorrect variant spelling of Christos, meaning Christ? Blakelock says yes, otherwise it must be someone else. Um, the reference is obviously to Christ. Now, this Italian historian, um, 
says that it is much easier to suppose that Christos is, uh, Christos here means Christos or Christ, than to hold that uh, Suetonius mixed up two Greek words, Christos and Christos. And it is much more reasonable to suppose that it is a misspelling of the name Christos and refers to Christ. Now then, this lower paragraph on page 82 is the evidence about Claudius. The situation may, therefore, with much probability, be thus reconstructed. In the 40s of the first century, the first Christian preaching was heard in Rome. Who preached first in Rome? Was Paul the first preacher of the gospel there? Well, uh, Mr. Johnson? Uh, the, the letter to the Romans was written there before he'd ever been there. Mr. James? Yeah, the letter to, to the epistle to the Romans, written from Corinth, apparently, by Paul, before he'd ever been there. He tells them there's his hope to get there. He also mentions by name a whole list of people there that he's probably met somewhere else in previous times, but uh, or knows about, desires to be uh, remembered to them and so on in the last chapter, but he had never been in Rome. Therefore, there was a Christian church in Rome before Paul ever got there. Who preached the gospel first in Rome? Nobody knows. And there may have been Roman soldiers who preached the gospel first in England. Nobody knows either. But anyhow, uh, there was a church there. And uh, uh, Blakelock says probably it began in the 40s, the first century. And the synagogue, Jewish synagogue, in bitter opposition, this led to tumults and riots between Jewish Christians and Jews who were not Christians, and perhaps later some Gentiles. The church in Rome, however, was predominantly a Jewish church for quite a while. Incidentally, for over a hundred years, all the bishops or pastors of the church in Rome had Greek names, and Greek was evidently the language used in the services of the church. And after about a hundred years, it shifted to Latin, and the bishops uh, listed in most of the popes had, had Latin names, and evidently the, uh, the balance shifted so that the Greek speakers were a small minority after that and the Latin speakers a majority. Now this uh, trouble, he says, rioting in the ghettos and is about one named Christ who is claimed by his followers to have risen from the dead. So um, evidently the rabbis of the Jewish synagogue in Rome told the same old story that had been told on the Easter morning in Jerusalem. His disciples came and stole away his body. This doesn't tell water, but uh, it'll do to put up in a, in a debate or an argument with some people. Now, um, the result of this, uh, Claudius was unable to settle the dispute between these different kinds of Jews. Over one Christos, who was said to have risen from the dead, and Claudius, unable to settle the dispute, did what, Mr. Banished all the Jews from Rome. You know, it's in one of Shakespeare's plays. A plague on both your houses. The Christian and the non-Christian Jews, and they're disputing about this, and this leads to some uh, fanatical opposition by the non-Christian Jews, presumably. And uh, the emperor is disgusted with this, and you can't get it settled, and you can't get to the bottom of it, apparently, and it doesn't make sense to him, get them all out of here. So uh, here is the rescript uh, 
sent to the governor uh, asked, what shall I do? And this um, is the probable origin of this Nazareth inscription. What shall I do? This is a hypothetical question addressed by the Roman governor in Palestine to Claudius the emperor. And a hypothetical reply quenched the trouble at its place of origin by a stern decree. And this would explain putting this Nazareth inscription up in uh, Nazareth and only in Nazareth. This was where the alleged leader of the Christians, who some claimed had risen from the dead, had first lived. And then um, this suggests two or three other things here that he mentions on page 83. The first is the Christian preaching in Rome began earlier than once supposed and many years before the arrival of Paul. Second fact is the imperial action against the church must have begun with Claudius and not with Nero after the great fire in A.D. 64. You know, Nero is said to have played his fiddle while watching the fire as Rome burned. This is where we get the expression, the fiddle while Rome burned. And is suspected of having set the fire so he could have a fire to play his fiddle by. <laughs> and he blamed it on the Christians. Now, uh, what I know of Christians, they're not arsonists. And Nero, however, probably or at least possibly guilty of this awful deed himself, said to Christians, these antisocial people who are atheists and don't believe in the gods, set fire to the city of Rome. Now, according to Blakelock, uh, persecution of Christians did not start with Nero, after all, but uh, started with Claudius. And um, the stark fact, another thing here, the stark fact of the empty tomb was accepted by the foes of Christ. Now you see, the rabbis say, his disciples stole his body away. This involves an admission that the tomb was found empty. And this is the whole point, the empty tomb. How come that tomb was found empty? Christ was buried in this uh, cave and a big stone rolled up and it was sealed with an official seal and a Roman guard placed to watch it. And on the morning of the first day of the week, it was open and empty. How could this be? Now the story that the Jewish leaders told, his disciples stole his body away, involves an admission that the tomb at daylight was found empty. The soldiers also said this. His disciples stole his body away while we slept. I wonder, uh, Mr. Thompson, uh, uh, could you be a good witness in court of something that happened while you were asleep? Uh, well, this is false on the face of it, you see. Roman soldiers didn't sleep on duty anyhow, but if they did, what happened while they slept, they wouldn't know anything about it. How could they, how could they testify to this? And yet that's what they said. His disciples stole his body away while we slept. Obviously false on the face of it, on the basis of their own statement, and leaving the undisputed claim that the tomb was found empty. Now, uh, Nazareth inscription. This is uh, very likely occasioned by the trouble in Rome about the resurrection of Jesus. And if not, what other explanation is there for this? You see, if we don't accept this explanation of it, that leaves this Nazareth inscription a complete mystery. What other explanation could we have to show whence this came? Now, well, we did not finish this chapter. The metaphorical evidence 
reference to the resurrection, Jesus spoke of a grain of wheat falling in the ground and dying, and uh, so it would live and bear much fruit. This is speaking of resurrection in uh, figure of speech. What was found at Eleusis, where the Eleusinian mysteries were held near Athens, that suggests the same idea. It's really formal. It's no real connection with Christianity at all. What did they find there? What was the symbol of this uh, mystery religion? The chief of corn. Now, that doesn't mean what we call corn. That means what Blakelock calls corn. And wheat, or grain, not, not maize, or what we call corn. Okay, yeah, we'll go on, and uh, I won't make out any assignments. Just go on reading and keep ahead of where we're at.